0: Thanks for joining us at Fort William Baptist Church in Thunder Bay, Ontario. We are currently working through the book of 1 Thessalonians. In this book, we see the heart of Paul for God's people. It's a yearning for them to walk in the will of God and have close fellowship with the Spirit. As we delve into this book, we will see Paul's burden that the people find refreshment in the God who loves them, that they would fix their thoughts on God's coming and that they would live lives that please Him, knowing how to live with and before a holy God. If you take your Bible this morning and open them up to the book of 1 Thessalonians, we're gonna be camping out in this book for a few months together. And our sermon text this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. I don't know about you, but often my experience of Sunday mornings is a blur. It goes by so fast. And that's sad because to be with God's people is such a refreshment. And so as we look at these 10 verses, let's read them, taking them in for their fullest. So, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and in Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come this morning and we set two petitions before you. First, we ask that for those of us who are in Jesus, bound to him by faith, washed by his blood, sealed by the Spirit, that you would shed light on our paths, that through these ten verses, you would give assurance to your people. Father, we ask that you would do that this morning through these 10 verses. Secondly, we ask that for those who are outside of Jesus, living in darkness, that you would use these 10 verses to reach down to the very foundations of their lives and shake them up. And that you would use these 10 verses to cause them to seek after Christ as he is revealed in the gospel. And so, Father, we ask that you would do these two things now as we look into your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at these opening verses, we can see that Paul is happy, so happy, in fact, that he turns to the Lord at the beginning of this letter, and he offers up prayer and thanksgiving. And what Paul does is he, he grabs the Thessalonians and he draws them in so happy is Paul that his happiness cannot be contained in private prayer, but he, he draws the Thessalonians into his, his praise and thanksgiving so that they might be able to worship the Lord as well. And as at the center of Paul's happiness is verse 3. Paul says, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is Paul so happy? He is happy because God has given the Thessalonians faith. They used to be a people who served the gods of wood and and stone and metal, but now they serve the true and living God. and, And this faith that God has given them has put them to work. They have become like Paul. They've become eager evangelists, and from their church, the word of the gospel echoed out into all of Macedonia and Achaia, and so successful were their efforts in telling others about Jesus that Paul says this in verse 8, and this should shock us, we need not say anything. Paul's not only happy because of their faith, but he is happy because God gave these people love. As they listened to the preaching of the gospel, they were gripped by the working of God's spirit and they became lovers of the truth. They became lovers of God and they became lovers of God's people. And this love that God gave them prompted them to labor. Driven by this love, they cared for all the brothers throughout Macedonia, chapter four, verse 10. So Paul is happy because of faith and love and he's also happy because God gave these people hope. They're experiencing affliction, but despite this affliction, they are immovable, and they are immovable because their eyes have been fixed on Jesus. Filling their vision is a vision of God's Son, the one who's been raised from the dead, the one who delivers from the wrath to come, the one who will come from heaven for his people. And Paul is so happy that his happiness finally spills over in verse 7. Paul, observing all that God is doing, sums up his thoughts about these Christians and says this, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Paul was not afraid of giving these Christians a a fat head, and as he observes the work of God in and through them, Paul essentially says this, dear Thessalonians, you are a model church. You are what a church ought to look like and function like. And so as we take in these 10 verses, we, we find a lot of happiness, don't we? There's a lot of praise and thanksgiving. There's a lot of affirmation and there's also a lot of information, faith, hope, love, evangelism, kind deeds, good works, perseverance in the midst of suffering and more. Paul goes on and on and we have a hard time keeping up with him in all of his joy and exuberance. But in the midst of all of this, Paul says something rather bold and profound. You might have missed it at first reading, and I want to point it out to you. In fact, I want to spend the whole sermon thinking about this one verse, verse four. So in the midst of all of this joy, Paul says this, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Imagine sitting down for a coffee with a friend. Your friend comes to the table and sits directly across from you and your friend looks you squarely in the eye and begins the conversation like this. I know something about you. I know something about you. I know that God has chosen you. You belong to the people that God knew and forechose before the foundation of the world. I know that God loves you and because he loves you, he has saved you to himself. And as we look at verse 4, that's exactly what Paul is doing here. Paul reaches out to the Thessalonians through verse 4, and he looks these brothers and sisters in the eye, not blinking once, and says this to them, Dear brothers and sisters in Jesus, I know something about you. I know that God has chosen you, that he set his love upon you before the foundation of the world, and because he loves you, he has saved you to himself. As you take in verse 4, that is such a bold and profound thing to say. So bold. And the question we have to immediately ask is this why would Paul say this to these Christians? Why would Paul say this? Well, we can eliminate a few options right off the bat from the get go. These are not words of flattery. Paul is not pumping their tires for their ego. Paul isn't that type of guy. He is blood earnest. He speaks the truth. Nor is Paul speculating. Paul cares far too much about these Thessalonians to have them pin their hopes on, on false assurances. Nor is Paul leading these people astray. He's not misguided. He, after all, is an apostle of Jesus, and he bears these people, this church, in his soul, he loves them so much. So why does Paul say this? Well, he says this, first of all, because it's true. He knows they are chosen and loved by God, and we're gonna have to think more about that. But underneath this knowledge, there is a a deeper reason. He wants these dear Christians, he wants these Thessalonians to have rock-solid confidence that they belong to God. He doesn't want them doubting. He doesn't want them guessing. He wants them to know that they belong to God. And this gets really practical fast. It is a hard and grievous thing to try to live out the Christian life without knowing that you belong to God. Think about it. It's like walking on a dark path, never knowing what comes next, never knowing your direction. Am I going forward or backward? Am I going to the right or to the left? Am I making progress or am I going nowhere at all? Not knowing what it is in fact you are standing on. Am I standing on the right path or have I gotten it wrong the whole time? Even more, it's a matter of terror, not knowing if you belong to God or not. When I stand before this great God someday, what will I receive from him? Will I receive mercy and kindness and grace, or will I experience fury and destruction and wrath? When this God thinks about me, surely he does, what does he think about me? Beloved child, child of grace and mercy, or child of wrath? Living in these doubts and questions is like trying to run a marathon in a set of hip waders. Just think about it. It's ridiculous. If you were to strap on a a set of hip waders and you were trying to run a marathon, how far are you going to make it? You're not going to make it very far. You probably won't even make it a mile. After a few steps, you're going to give up. And that's what it's like to live the Christian life without knowing you belong to God or not. All the questions, all the doubts rob the soul of joy and makes perseverance seem impossible. And so what Paul does in verse 4 is he takes these words and in these words he is working so that he might take their hip waders away and replace them with a pair of running shoes. Because Paul knows the truth about them, that they are chosen by God. He works to clear up all the doubt, all the speculation, all the, the nagging questions that they might know for sure that they belong to God. And so he comes to them and he bids them to joy in peace, saying this For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And so I ask you, in light of verse 4, do you know if you belong to God? Do you know if God has set his love upon you and has saved you to himself? Do you know if God has purposed you, determined you for fellowship with him and has become your God in the gospel? Do you know, in other words, if God has chosen you and are you sure of it? Well, Paul was sure about the Thessalonians. He says, we know, we know. So we already asked the first question, we asked why, why would Paul say that? And we've got an answer, he he doesn't want these people living in the dark, he wants them to live in the light. And a second question comes with this, well, how could Paul know this? How could Paul know this? And again, we can eliminate a couple of options right off the bat. Though Paul was an apostle of Jesus, in this matter, he had no special access into heaven. Paul didn't climb up a heavenly staircase and sneak a look into the mind and plan of God. He didn't receive a message from an angel who who told him this, nor was this a matter of intuition, as if Paul had some sort of magical sixth sense about these people. Well, how did Paul know this? Paul knew this because he observed them. He watched them. And from these ten verses, we can see that Paul was a man who was keen to observe the people of God. He had his eyes fixed on the Thessalonians. When he was with them, preaching the gospel to them, he was watching them carefully. And when he was removed from them, they were still before him. He was like an anxious parent separated from his children. And as all these scraps of information came his way, he would gather them all up, thinking about them, trying to discern what is happening with them. And from all that he observed when he was with them and when he was away from them and the reports he received, he could say this, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And as we think about this, this presents us with a wonderful piece of news. God's salvation, God's work, God's sovereign choice can be discerned. God's work doesn't stay hidden away in our souls, out of sight from the world, but it springs forth into new life. We don't have to try to climb up to heaven and get a staircase we might ascend into the mind of God. We don't have to procure some strange vibe or wait for an angel from heaven to know if we belong to God or not. Paul demonstrates in verses one through 10 that this precious knowledge can be reasonably discerned in this present life. We can know if we belong to God. And in fact, Scripture commands us to pursue this knowledge. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 puts it like this. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to aid you in this. So from these first 10 verses of 1 Thessalonians, I want to set before you five signs of salvation. So Paul is looking at this church, observing them, and he sees five signs. And from those five signs, he reasons in verse 4, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And you have work to do as I bring these five signs to you and open them up. When I open these five signs up to you, you need to carefully match the truth of each sign to your soul, asking, is this something that I have? Is this something that has happened to me, something that I've experienced for myself? Is this something that I know true, Is that is true for me? If Paul were observing my life, would he reasonably see this in me? So five signs. We'll start with the first sign. First sign is this, the Thessalonians were gripped by the gospel. The Thessalonians were gripped by the gospel. And so Paul came to the Thessalonians and he came preaching the gospel to them. And when he preached the gospel to them, something remarkable happened. They were gripped by the gospel, meaning that their souls were stirred and moved in such a way that they clung to Jesus for all his worth. And we have to work carefully here as we think about this. The Thessalonians reacted this way to the preaching of the gospel. They were gripped by it, not because they were impressed by Paul's public speaking or preaching abilities. Paul says this in verse 5, Our gospel came to you not only in words. This wasn't a matter of rhetoric. And Paul talks more about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So how, how, how did this work then? Well, the, the, the Thessalonians reacted this way to the preaching of the gospel because there was another worker at work. It wasn't just Paul. Look at verse five again. Paul says, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction." What was going on? The Holy Spirit was working in Paul's preaching, taking the word of the gospel and applying it to the hearts of the Thessalonians in power, bringing about what? Bringing about deep conviction in the hearts of those who believe. There was another worker at work in the preaching of the gospel. It wasn't just Paul. It was the very Spirit of God. And Paul gives to us a vivid description of how this works in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Paul says there this, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what is Paul talking about here? He's talking about gospel preaching. What has he done? He has come proclaiming not himself, but Jesus as Lord. And something happens there. In the preaching of the gospel, as Paul is proclaiming Jesus as Lord, the Spirit comes and he's coming to dark hearts that can't receive the word of the gospel, and the Spirit comes and flips the lights on, flips the lights on, and when the lights are turned on, the heart is no longer dark, but it can see, and what can it see? It can see the very light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the seeing changes everything. For when the lights are turned on, the, the gospel is not just a bunch of set of facts to be memorized. Jesus died, He He was buried, He rose, He ascended. The, the gospel is not a, a math equation to be figured out. One plus one equals two. Jesus isn't just this historical figure to be studied in the past. No, when God comes in the preaching of the gospel, as the Spirit is working and turns the lights on, the hearers see glory. They see the very glory of God radiating forth from the face of Jesus. And that's exactly what happened to the Thessalonians. They saw in the preaching of the gospel the beauty and the wonder and the glory of Jesus. And because they could see Jesus, their hearts were gripped. And because their hearts were gripped, they were able to cling to Jesus for all his worth. And so Paul looks at these Thessalonians and he sees how they received the gospel. And that's the first sign. The Thessalonians were gripped by the gospel. Second sign. The Thessalonians underwent a total conversion. They underwent a total conversion. We see this in verses 9 and 10. Paul writes, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so we see this turnaround. Before the word of the gospel, the Thessalonians were worshiping idols. That's who they were. They were idol worshipers, idolaters. We might hear that word idolatry and And think of a small little Buddha sitting on a shelf or like a strange totem pole on top of a hill. And we might think, well, how could anything like that be consuming? How could anything like that be be noteworthy that Paul would point that out to them and to us? Well, the thing was, idolatry was consuming in Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, politicians were priests and the emperor claimed divinity, civic duty, simply just being a good citizen in the city meant worshiping the idols and participating in the cults and taking part in all of the sacrifices, your work. Perhaps you belong to a guild like a union. Your, your guild would have had a patron god or two or three or maybe more. Everything in your life would have been wrapped up in idolatry and there is no ground to escape it. There's no idol-free ground. It's in politics and work and, and family and life, even in sports. But when the word of the gospel came to the Thessalonians, they did the unthinkable. They turned their back on idols. And not just some of them, not some of the easy or convenient ones. They turned their back on all of the idols. They became like the psalmist who said, Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. And this is to say, the word of the gospel was not an added accessory to their lives. I serve and worship Aphrodite and Zeus and Isis and now I serve the God of Israel and his son Jesus who died and rose again. I'm just bringing Jesus into my pantheon of personal gods. Rather their conversion was this complete reordering of reality. The work of God reached down into their hearts and shook the very foundations of their lives, destroying what was there and replacing it wholesale with something brand new. And this is what conversion looks like. The scriptures use the stark language to describe it as a transition from death to life. It's a movement from a state of darkness to a state of light. It is called a new birth. Sometimes it is described as a heart transplant surgery. And so as Paul looks at the Thessalonians, he sees that they underwent a total conversion to God. That's the second sign. Moving on to the third sign. The Thessalonians bore spiritual fruit. They bore spiritual fruit. And we see it. That's how the letter begins in verse 3. Paul looks at these people and they are ripe with fruit. He looks at them and he sees faith. And love and hope. And not just glimmers of it and shards of it. He sees faith revealed in their work. He sees love manifest in their labor. He sees hope revealed in their constancy and stability in the midst of persecution. And he sees all of these things, faith, hope, and love, in the midst of their lives over time. Over time. They have a track record. Paul sees it. Certainly this tells us something about the Thessalonians. They were people committed to the gospel. They loved the Gospel, they loved the commands of Jesus, and they were committed to following the commands of Jesus. Even more, they're they're, they're a group of people who worked hard. They were industrious folks and they weren't afraid to get their hands dirty in the mission of Jesus. They were after it. But we can't stop there. We just can't point our finger at the Thessalonians. Faith, love, hope, All of these things that Paul lists off are are not naturally occurring things. They just don't pop up naturally, haphazardly in human hearts. Rather, they are all gifts and graces of the Holy Spirit. And the reasoning of Paul is not hard to understand here. He's going something like this. I see the gifts and graces of the Spirit in you. I see faith and love and hope. That must mean then that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. If I can see the gifts, that means the giver must be around He must have been there and he is still there working. And this makes sense to us. Just think, if you go outside after a fresh snow and you see footprints on the sidewalk, you reason, well, somebody must have been there. If you go to a crime scene, the detective, there's fingerprints. And if there's fingerprints, there must have been someone here at this crime scene. And it's the same way among God's people. Where there is faith and hope and love, we can reason. God's spirit is there. Faith, hope, and love are the very footprints and fingerprints of God. And so Paul looks at these Thessalonians, and he sees spiritual fruit. Fourth sign. The Thessalonians resembled Jesus. They looked like Jesus. Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, Jesus says this. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his house? Jesus has a very basic principle at work in these two verses. A, A learner looks like his teacher. A disciple looks like his teacher. There's a resemblance over time that appears And as we think about Paul, that was true of Paul. Paul was a a follower, a disciple of Jesus. And as we look at Paul's life, his life began to resemble Jesus' more and more, especially in the terms of suffering. And it's given ample evidence in this letter. Paul was what? He was beaten and shamed in Philippi. And then when he came to, to Thessalonica, he was also beaten and shamed and pushed away and pushed out. And as Paul looks at these Christians... can see the same sort of resemblance at work. Verse 6, Paul looks at the Thessalonians and he says, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You see what Paul sees, just as Jesus suffered, just as Paul and his companions have suffered, these Thessalonians are suffering. There is a resemblance just as Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, Hebrews 12, 2. Just as Paul, who is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, 2 Corinthians six ten. These Thessalonians took hold of the word of the gospel in the midst of much affliction. And they rejoiced. Because God's Holy Spirit was there giving birth to joy in these unusual and hard circumstances. And so Paul looks at these Thessalonians and what does he see? He says, you look like Jesus. You're you're suffering and you're suffering with joy. You resemble me and you resemble Christ himself. And the fifth sign, the last sign. The Thessalonians labored for the lost. The Thessalonians labored for the lost. When the word of the gospel came to the Thessalonians, it turned the direction of their lives, not only from idols, we've seen that, but towards others' people. They, like Paul, became eager to proclaim the gospel to others. In fact, this church became a force of evangelism in the geographical area of Macedonia and Achaia. Verse 8, Paul says this, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. With a bit of exaggeration, Paul says that these Thessalonians were putting him and his companions out of work. For people from all over Macedonia, and Achaia, and far beyond there were hearing the word of the gospel from them. Paul's this church planter. And people are hearing the word of the gospel from this church, these Thessalonians. And so these Thessalonians were not just recipients of the gospel, they became eager and able proclaimers of the gospel. And just think about the time frame. Maybe this letter was written a year after Paul came to them for the first time. And maybe just after a year or a year and a half, not much more, they had what? They had taken the gospel all over the place. What does this mean? Well, it means they had bought in, hook, line, and sinker to Jesus' mission. That's what they live for. That's what they breathe for. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. These people were in on it. And as Paul looks at these Thessalonians... He sees their love for the lost and their commitment to the mission of Jesus. So there are the five signs. So Paul is observing these these Christians when he was with them and when he was afar. And after gathering up all of these signs of salvation, Paul turns to them in verse four and says, brothers, we know. We know, beloved by God, that God has chosen you. And so I turn all of this around on you now. Do you know if you belong to God? Do you know if you belong to God? And Paul has given us these five signs that we can think through for our lives. Do I, do I labor for the loss? Is there a commitment in my life to the mission of Jesus? Am I burdened by that? Is there a resemblance of Jesus in my life? is there spiritual fruit is the spirit present producing faith and hope and love have i been converted to god have i been converted to god have i been gripped by the gospel of jesus and do i cling to jesus for all his worth so there's a question to answer you know if you belong to God. And I don't want to just leave you with this question because the question should be answered. And if you think about it, there's really only two options. There's either yes or no. And so I want to give a word of of counsel to, to both directions. So this morning, perhaps you say, well, yes. Yes, I know I belong to God. I see it in this passage. God is shedding light on my way. I see it. Well, What is there for you? Well, here's what you should do. You should rejoice. You should rejoice that God's work is manifest in your life. Rejoice that He has chosen you and saved you and loved you and brought you to Himself. And then, importantly, you must do this you must walk in the light that God gives you. You must walk in the light that God gives you. Going back to that silly image of the hip waiters, God doesn't want you running the race of the Christian life in hip waiters. He wants you to run with running shoes. He doesn't want you going down the path in the darkness. He wants you going down the path in the light. And God gives these signs of salvation. He gives verses like verse four so that we would run in the light. And what a glorious thing it is to live the Christian life with assurance that we belong to God we belong to God and so I urge you Christian run in the light run in the light but there's another answer that can be given and that answer is no you look at these 10 verses and they all seem foreign to you you're looking at these signs you're picking them up you're matching them in your soul and these just don't fit it's like puzzle pieces that just they're wrong so what is there for you what are you supposed to do? Well, here's the thing. You can't make these signs appear in your life. This isn't a self improvement project. Assurance with God isn't something you can work up in yourself and make yourself feel. Rather, all of these signs, these five signs of salvation, are signs that were given from God to these people. And they were given all through what? The word of the gospel. You see, the Thessalonians were changed through what? They were changed to the hearing of the word of the gospel. The word about Jesus, his death for sinners, his burial, his victory over over death and the resurrection created all of these things in these people. And so as you look at these signs and they don't match up with your soul, what are you supposed to do? If you don't know if God has chosen you, well, here's the thing you must do. You must go to Christ. And I bid you to this Jesus, cast your eye upon the one who was put to death for sinners. His death is sufficient for all your sins. Cast your eye upon the one who was buried in the tomb for three days. Even more, cast your eye upon the one who was raised from the dead three days later, who rose victorious over sin and death and Satan, who was the great conqueror over all, and find your justification in him. And so what can you do? Well, you can't gain assurance without Jesus. You can't get assurance without Jesus. You can only get assurance through receiving Jesus in the gospel, hearing by faith. And so I bid you, hear the gospel by faith today. Grab hold of Christ. And then let the word of the gospel do its amazing work. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for these ten verses. And we do ask, as we meditate on them, that you would give light to us, to your people. We do not want to walk in darkness. We don't want to walk in confusion and doubt. We want to walk in the light. And so would you shed light upon our souls. Father, we pray for those outside of Jesus, that you would use these five signs and these ten verses to shake them up, that you, by your grace, would give them faith so that they might hear the word of the gospel. We pray that your spirit would come and turn the lights on, that they might see the the glory in Jesus' face. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.